Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to another episode in the Rusk Rehabilitation podcast series at NYU Langone Health. These interviews make it possible to learn about developments in the field of rehabilitation aimed at improving the lives of patients. I am honored to have as today's guest, Dr. John Ross Rizzo, a physician scientist at NYU Langone Health. Podcast listeners have an opportunity to hear many interviews with exceptionally knowledgeable and interesting participants. Each segment is in the 15 to 20 minute range, apart from the introduction of speakers. Occasionally, a pair of longer recordings is featured by individuals who participated in Grand Rounds presentations at the Rusk Institute of Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Health. This podcast by Dr. Rizzo is on the topic of A Rehabilitation Reset, New Frontiers to Expand Our Scope. His presentation occurred at a Grand Rounds session at Rusk on September 12, 2019. Dr. Rizzo is an assistant professor serving as the Director of Innovation and Technology and Research on an interim basis for the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation with cross-appointments in the Department of Neurology, the Department of Mechanical and Aerospace Engineering, and the Department of Biomedical Engineering at the NYU Tandon School of Engineering. He leads the Visual Motor Integration Laboratory where his team focuses on eye-hand coordination as it relates to acquired brain injury, and the Rehabilitation Engineering Alliance and Center Transforming Low Vision Laboratory, where his team focuses on advanced wearables for the sensory deprived and benefits from his own personal experiences with vision loss. In part one of his presentation, Dr. Rizzo stated that as rehabilitation clinicians, we live at the juncture of structure and function. His remarks in the two segments centered around various stories. In part two of his presentation, Dr. Rizzo began by indicating that work is being performed involving both traumatic brain injury and concussion. So um, I just wanted to throw a little bit of work given our, um, our fantastic collaborations. Um, we've been working with print on, on, on some of this work and also with our, with our esteemed colleagues in neurology. We've been looking at kind of the amount of work the eye has to do in different rapid number naming tests on sideline on the sidelines for um, traumatic brain injury, more specifically concussion. We've done a lot of work with the King Hevig test and their new test of mules. There's another one coming out called the Sun, which we're very excited about. We've worked in uh, on some of this in multiple sclerosis as well. Um, we've also had some ongoing collaborations with the Movement Disorder Center and Neuropsychology here, uh, working with Hillary and also Joseph, which we're very excited about. Um, looking at kind of digitizing um, a couple of neuropsych inventories 
and Parkinson's um, uh, patients, their ability to visually spatial plan as they complete some of these movements. So we're doing eye tracking and looking at their ability to complete these inventories. And post-art therapy, so this is actually an intervention trial, we are actually seeing noticeable changes. So it's, it's quite exciting in this initial work. Um, so uh, before I finish for this kind of first story, I'm trying to keep myself on time here. Um, what are next steps? What's exciting? How do we kind of go from I-hand and how do we move into kind of the, the, the next frontier? Um, I think there's a lot there in terms of using machine learning and artificial intelligence. I-hand is just the initial, the, the initial piece of what I envision as multi-effector coordination. I-lay coordination I think is very exciting as we look at dynamic navigation on the street, which is definitely part of instrumental activities of daily living. I-trunk coordination I think is very important. These are things we look at on a daily basis and, and we're, we're treating but I think we need to do better in terms of objectifying the function to understand how patients are recovering and perhaps the economy of, um, of, of their function. And I think we can look more specifically in disease states and in, in, in sports and, and use different rigs and um, different setups or paradigms. As a bit of a teaser before we move to story number two, we wanted to show you um, a bit of the work that we've just started to do. This is in collaboration um, with uh, some collaborators in um, Italy, uh, in, in Bologna. And um, what we're doing here is, aside from importing salami, I'm just joking, um, we actually have some GoPro video footage from squash players playing at high levels. And so what you can see here is we've actually then brought in athletes who play squash at various levels of expertise. We have them view the actual video like they're uh, playing or simulating gameplay with an eye tracker and we record their eye movements. So you can see their point of regard as a small circle. Um, I think it's kind of like a pinkish mauve or purplish bouncing around. And what we've done here is we've actually annotated objects of interest in the video to see where their point of regard is and then we can understand what they're doing in terms of how they're watching the game and their eye strategies and kind of understand um, how they're planning, how they're approaching, what their eye movements look like as they're playing the simulated form of uh, squash play, if you will. Um, so that's just a quick look. Uh, more on that later. So I'm going to pause for a quick sec, pause the Gatlin gun. And um, uh, I'm going to ask if there are any questions before I move to story number two. Yes. What was the biofeedback for this? For some of the stroke patients, it showed they, you know, they made some nice improvements. You said with biofeedback. Yes. Like, was it like the sports biofeedback? What were you giving them? As yeah. So basically, on that same computer display, we just gave them a little visual indication on that screen that was in the upper right-hand corner, um, and basically just showed them uh, with a little kind of uh, in, in comparison to the target a small kind of colored dot about how large their spatial error was for the reach. And then it's a little bit more complicated, but basically a form of that for their, for their eye error. Um, so that you could imagine that if the target was visualized in a, in a red, they might have um, like a pink for the hand and then for a yellow for the eye error. And we thought it might actually be disconcerting and too much having this double biofeedback, if you will, biofeedback squared. But in fact, it seemed that they were able to kind of, you know, consciously, um, you know, reweight what they were doing, pay more attention to, you know, their, their ocular motor system, and it seemed to be, uh, you know, somewhat constructive for them. Sure. Anything else? Good question. Sorry that I zoomed past that. Dr. Rashbaum, good to see you. Excellent. Okay, story number two. Um, assistive technology. So, assistive technology as the aluminum kings and queens of medicine, um, we're used to having assistive devices, as visualized on the right-hand um, aspect of this slide, for all different types of physical impairments. But 
I ask us, what about for sensory impairments? What are we doing for sensory impairments? Now, we do have some tools, particularly for things in seated use and for, 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 for computer skills and for work training, but what about for mobility? Here you can see visualize um, some adaptive mobility devices for children who are visually impaired and also um, standard white cane technology for individuals who and young children who are visually impaired. But what is happening um, for that world um, as it relates to those with sensory impairment? So the, the, the cold harsh reality of it is that the white cane was invented approximately 100 years ago. And if we look at Robel Emerson's group uh, from Western Michigan, and the fact is that most cane users do not adhere to the classic description of proper cane use. And so if we think more about these mechanical solutions, where are they breaking down? Well, as many of you have probably seen on New York City streets, there are two different classic approaches to using white cane. There's constant contact or two-point touch. Now, classically, that's a swinging um, kind of regimen where you have to go in a reciprocating fashion with gait. The problem with using that approach oftentimes is that you miss large objects, or you end up walking into things as visualized by these images. And this is Donna Sauerberger from University of Maryland, who does incredible work. Um, but in the earlier slide that I showed you here, you ended up seeing children using really interesting push and clear technologies called adaptive mobility devices. So why do we get away from using adaptive mobility devices? So working with some of our engineering teams, um, we, uh, our lab started coming up with new hybrid technology. So we reverse engineered some of the hinge mechanisms from an umbrella and we actually decided to use modern material science and we came up with what we call in the literature the adaptive mobility device or in commercially what we'll probably call the dragonfly. Um, and this we're hoping to commercialize uh, um, and launch uh, by the end of 2019 or early 2020. Um, we're very excited about it. The idea is basically you can um, uh, deploy these two satellite wings like an adaptive mobility device, but with a simple kind of clothespin uh, push, uh, you can uh, collapse um, the, those, those two wings and pull them back up uh, in terms of the lever arm so it's easy to manipulate. We're using carbon fiber technology, so it's incredibly lightweight. We've got that entire form factor under a pound, which is only about a hamburger more than a classic white cane, believe it or not. Um, and as I said, this push and clear technology can now be used. It's able to use in dual form factor. We've actually done third party testing with Robble Emerson and Western Michigan, which is now uh, published in the Journal of Assistive Technology. We've improved um, drop off and edge detection by 50%. And the object detection, as you would imagine, having this kind of um, almost bulldozer effect is much superior. So we're doing much better and we're very excited about having this technology and bringing this technology uh, uh, to Rust. So I wanted to just uh, uh, briefly mention the mechanical solutions, but what about advanced solutions, changing gears a bit? So who's familiar with ADASs? Show of hands, advanced driver assist systems. All right, I see a couple of hands, fantastic. So on the right-hand side of this slide here, you can see an image from Bosch. Now Bosch supplies a lot of the technologies in high-end cars, Acura, Mercedes, BMW, et cetera. They provide the sensor technologies and the sensor fusion to provide for ADASs. What are ADASs for those who are unfamiliar with it? These are the systems that aid drivers and that help in terms of the work to increase road safety. Examples include things like blind spot warning, lane departure warning, collision warnings, forward collision warning, auto emergency braking. Let's look at the data. So if we actually pull crash analysis data from the police report from 2010 to 2014, 
Let's look at what actually happens for just forward collision warning systems. These are just passive systems saying, hey, there's a car shop stopping in front of you rapidly. Or the ones that actually go in the next step into an active system where we automatically engage the e-brake, which is now, by the way, becoming mandated in the European Union and the United States is taking firm steps to deploy all of this in uh, here domestically as well. Well, let's just take rear-end striking because I find this one particularly fascinating. Well, just for the warning alone, almost 25% reduction. In four or five years, 25%, a quarter of those rear-end collisions went down just by saying, hey, this gunman's stopping in front of you. It's pretty miraculous. Now, if we actually provide a brake assist using these sensor technologies, which are now very inexpensive, in certain cases, $10, $15, we get close to 40%, and I think this data is probably closer to 50% now. 50% reduction in rear-end collisions. That's pretty massive. Now I ask us all, if we're doing this for cars that weigh 3,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds, 5,000 pounds, why can't we do this for foals, for people with sensory impairments? Why can't we create advanced pedestrian assist systems, sensory augmentative tools? This is where we're going, this is what we're doing. Sensory augmentative tools help stop for individuals for sensory impairments and replace those sensory deficits with sensory enhancements. And this is what we're building right now. This is a picture of the actual prototypes and the mounts that we're 3D printing right now at the Tandon School of Engineering in collaboration with our reactive center here at Rust. And we're building smart service systems that have this, the spatial intelligence and the onboard navigation. We have sensor fusion, which you can see visualized with different form factors on the, uh, the left-hand side of the slide. And on the lower left, you can actually see how this system is put together. Zooming in a little bit more, and in, in short, we call these iPacks for instrumented book bags. We have sensor kits, so they're basically set up along the shoulder straps and sternal straps. These are stereoscopic cameras, much like how the Tesla functions. If, you, if you've ever seen a Tesla, they're kind of little cutouts in, the, in the, the quarter panels where they have these camera technologies. And then inside, we have embedded systems in the book bag sleeves, and we have waist straps where we have actuators that can actually feed you tactile information in terms of prompts about how to turn, different information, hazard warnings, etc. We also connect Bluetooth to a headset and we can feed you audio information. This is where we think we can get to the next level. This is our third generation haptic interface on the right hand side that we're building with the Mechanical and Aerospace Division, which I'll tell you a little bit more briefly if I don't run out of time. So um, we'll see uh, um, how, how we get there. So, some of you might be saying, this sounds wonderful in theory, but how the hell do you do it? It's a bit far-fetched. The way we do it is we do it with artificial intelligence, and we build this spatial intelligence using very specific computer algorithms that run these neural nets, or these deep neural nets, as they're called, DNNs, on computer images that are coming in, and we analyze it image by image. We're able to do this up to 30 frames a second, so that's 30 times per second. And what we're able to do is we're able to do things like put semantic labels on objects, so that means this individual on the top right gets labeled as a human. And then we put a bounding box around him, we can approximate his height and width, and then using the depth image, because of the fact that these are um, stereoscopic cameras and they're registered to one another, we use depth mapping, which you can see on the lower right-hand side here, and we can approximate how far they are from you. So underneath this individual it says 3.5 meters. These calculations are done on every frame coming into this camera 30 times a second. This is the type of information that we can use. This is how we cut down on falls. This is how we can get to potential 50% reductions, perhaps, in different sensory impairment settings. But I do believe we will be able to get there for multiple conditions that we treat in rehabilitation. Okay, how does this get put together? Again, it sounds good in theory. Let's put it into action. So I'll show you how we're actually using this. 
in New York City right now, there are 15,000 signalized intersections. Right now, if you actually ask the director of accessibility, Kumel Arroyo, who's a collaborator of ours, under 1,000 have accessible pedestrian signals, APSs, meaning they either chirp or they have tactile arrows for people who are visually impaired. That's unacceptable as far as we're concerned. So we built a neural net that was actually trained on the pedestrian signals, and now within 98% accuracy, 99% accuracy, we can tell you whether that's a stoplight or a green, a green go for a pedestrian across the street using the sensors on the book bag and the, the, the embedded computer system. And the way the process works is through this neural net pipeline, which you can see visualized in the middle of the screen. So someone's about to approach a corner, we grab an image, that image gets sent to this little computer, the computer has a, a program, an algorithm, we put that into the algorithm, we test it and we look for specific patterns with this algorithm, we spit out red light, green light. And then we can work on timing, et cetera, intersection geometry. There are other things to this. It gets more extensive. So how would this actually look? This is what we call our quad view. This is his first person action view on the upper left from our wearable, a view from one of the actual cameras on the actual book bag itself. This is the RGB feed. We're now analyzing the RGB feed frame by frame as the video is streaming into the book bag on the upper right. On the lower left, we're analyzing that in terms of depth, showing you how far everything is from a view set to a, a, grade, um, a gray color gradient. So what's closer is lighter, what's farther away is darker. And then on the right-hand side, we're showing you a view from the chaperone watching this person as he's walking around um, the Tandon campus. This is the Tandon campus in Brooklyn. Um, you can see the different things that we're actually <coughs> analyzing. All these different colors mean we're actively processing those individuals, meaning people, pedestrians, bystanders. Now, what's interesting about that, one of the reasons we put it after the cross-state project is that you can actually see um, the signals turning colors, um, which you may have caught, and I can go back to that if we have time. Okay. Um, a couple of quick um, other kind of uh, build-outs for certain features of the system that we're really excited about, and I just wanted to give you guys a couple everyone a couple teasers, and I realize that I'm losing track of timing and my speed has not uh, waned at all, so I'm gonna keep on pumping. Let me know if there are any questions. So um, this is actually where we get into more kind of reach to grasp and, and motor control in terms of building specific instrument, instrumental activities of daily living. If we would do shopping, uh, for example, or cooking, and so we wanted to see how could we use this system um, for different aspects for individuals who were, who were visually impaired but trying to reach for different objects on a shelf or reach for different objects on a table. How could this be put together? And how could we leverage existing sensory systems like proprioception in order to rebuild function? So we came up with a system, and this is a published paper now, um, called Point to Tell and Touch or Point to Tell and Engage. So the way this basically works in, in, in brief um, is that we actually end up having the end user extend your arm and point at different, um, different areas in space. You're tuned into your proprioceptive sense so you know where you're pointing. We then understand where your, your finger is and you basically use it as a digital laser pointer and then we tell you what's in front of you. Um, and then based on micro gestures that you're then able to do, circles or crosses, we can then feed to you information because you're interested in that an object. So for example, you may point over and there may be a chair, you want to sit in that chair, you circle it, the chair is approximately four feet away. You know you now need to walk four feet and you have the vector because you just pointed in that direction. Um, the, the, the way this would work in terms of a feedback loop, so obviously central control, we make a decision. Um, we end up doing pointing in different directions. I have access to proprioception. I've lost my vision, um, unfortunately, but I can replace it with audio, okay? And it can even identify uh, strange um, apes uh, like myself. Um, uh, it does quite well, although sometimes, depending on how greasy my head is, not. 
But um, the um, the big advance here, we, we struggled with this one for about six months, was when we actually figured out how to train the system correctly. And part of this, the secret sauce here was actually training the neural net with hands in the actual photos of objects of interest. But we can get into those details later. OK. The next step that I'm actually even more excited about sharing is um, we're not aware of any projects that have been able to build online motor control um, error correction um, uh, for people who are visually impaired yet. I don't think it's ever been attempted, at least in the literature that we're aware of. And so we said, wouldn't it be cool if we could give someone a bracelet that had actuators that vibrated in different directions? So if you actually knew with a vector, you actually reached for it, but you reached in the wrong direction, we could vibrate you and how to correct online. So if I reach for something I know online, if I'm off target and I correct with my visual sense, people who are visually impaired don't have that benefit. If I give you the initial depth but you're off target, you're trying to reach for a door handle, for example, but you're five inches off to the right, what if I had a vibrating band and I vibrated you on the left to auto-correct for that? We're now able to do that. We call that point to tell and engage. That's P to T and E. And so what we do here is we have this movement pointing, we do objects of interest, we engage with it so you get the initial audio cue you reach to perform a potential grasp, but then we do a haptic overlay to do the online reaching correction. We're very excited about this research, um, and this is now working. This is also in a paper that we're working on with the computer, one of the computer vision groups at um, the engineering school. To give you a sense of how this actually works, to show you what, what's happening in the experiments, um, point to tell, we did an experiment at Tandon um, with some expendable undergraduates. Just joking. Um, there were 20 of them that we blindfolded. We compared them either using um, direct exploration, so they were blindfolded and they were told to identify seven objects on a table quickly, like shape and feel it's a banana, shape and feel it's a cup, etc., versus actually using our simple point to tell system, pointing it would describe to you what it is, and then you would be able to tell the examiner what that object was, banana, and you could then say, oh, it's a banana, so you can identify something. And just a quick um, analysis, basically we, we matched identification scores and in terms of total time, talking about efficiency, talking about work, talking about economy, going back to that again, we went from 42, 41 to 42 seconds for direct exploration to 20 seconds for point to tell. And that was before we started fine tuning the system. Okay. So this is how it would potentially work. A visually impaired student goes into the library. This is in fact the library in tandem, in fact using the very system. He then moves around and identifies all different objects for him so he can rebuild function for him and he does not need anyone else to assist him. He rebuilds his own function. That's the idea here. And as you can see, this individual is moving around, he's pointing, he understands where proprioception is, he now knows where the objects in his environment are. If there are any questions, please let me know. Okay. So it's, it's important not to think just about um, um, handheld reach to grasp, things like cooking, shopping, but we also have to think about navigation outside. The DOT called us up a little while ago. They said one of the newest things that we're doing, we're very happy about, are these urban plazas. Who's familiar with urban plazas in New York City? Anyone? No. Okay, one, excellent. Ben, maybe two. Okay. Urban plazas are these new kind of fun city parks where we basically kind of recommission city streets. For people who are visually impaired, it's a disaster because we're used to things being right angles and crosswalks, and then you end up walking into this weird set of park benches and shrubs, and nothing makes sense, and people are tripping and falling. Multiple support groups who are visually impaired are suing the city right now because they can't stand urban plazas. What's even worse is the city is anticipating putting a 10x increase on these urban plazas in the next 10 years. Big problem. So they said, what can we do using wearable systems to increase and help the people who are visually impaired? 
So we built a neural net to, to identify urban um, plazas. Um, this research is being done with an individual named Chen Fen, who um, comes from the Mitsubishi driverless car project. We hired him at the engineering school about a year ago. We're now able to rather successfully identify urban plazas, and we're trying to figure out how to build that into the wearable as well. Okay. Um, the last thing I'll tease you with a little bit is some indoor mat, um, indoor planning. So a lot of these wearable systems have um, inertial measurement units, inertial measurement units. Um, so these are, um, and they have um, uh, magnetometers, etc. How can we add those to our existing systems and start to do real-time floor uh, um, floor plan um, mapping? So the idea here is, in a lot of situations, there's been new talks of uh, putting beacons throughout environments and trying to get facilities to kind of instrument your space. But the problem is the standards are very difficult. By the time we get individuals to deploy those systems, they become outdated. So we said, what if we could use our wearable systems to create those maps automatically without any infrastructure? So this is basically a mapping without infrastructure challenge. This is a corporate sponsored project that we're very excited about. This is some early work. We're actually walking around an office floor plan and we're actually mapping the floor plan just using the wearables. So we're creating maps without using anything else except just the camera feeds from the wearable itself and some additional sensors built into the wearable. Um, um, I don't know if I'm gonna have time to go into all of this, but we're working on a new project and this is in, in, um, uh, in a grant where we started to um, think and examine um, urban commuting for people who are visually impaired and have different disabilities. Um, we're very excited that the MTA is now an official partner of ours on this. Um, in, in addition to the New York City Transit Authority. Um, this is an official 2D floor plan of the 66th Street Station red line uh, that was shared to us with the MTA. So I'm not allowed to send this file to anyone, but I just figured we are now working with the actual floor plans for the, for the New York City uh, Transit System, which we're very excited about, because this will give us a big leg up on how to do some of this um, mapping um, in these um, different commuter zones, if you will, in some of these transportation hubs. Um, so a couple other quick things that we're doing real quick. You know, a lot of this may sound good and we're doing a lot of it. A lot of the individuals who've seen us test these systems on the 17th floor know that we oftentimes are running around with a person with a book bag behind or not me or Todd or Mahi. We're all running around carrying like a book bag or there's a big laptop in the book bag. And you know, we're, we're running around trying to get all, all of this to work, right? So assuming there's a lot of kind of computational need here, it's very easy for a car to do this because it has a big trunk, right? And there's a big computer in that trunk. Um, the computers are getting smaller, but it's a real reality to think about how to make these systems light enough and fast enough to make sure that we can bring not just basic features, but advanced features. So here's some schematics about some of the work we're doing on our new grants to not just feed some basic features that we would say are you know, rather poor at, at what we would need for high-end navigation and what made us leave us you know, not with optimized economy, but working into going into 4G, which starts to go from red to yellow, or maybe even into 5G, which we might have heard um, in, in the news most recently about the most advanced wireless and even 6G, which we're talking about right now. Um, and this is our ability to maybe analyze, as I said before, going up to 30 frames a second, going from five to eight frames per second to 15 frames a second to 30 frames per second. Uh, per second. How we can bring, bring, bring better features. And what gets really excited about this, if we can start to do this and send this information, so we send this information from a book bag up into the cloud through 5G, this is where we start to really improve our power. So if you look at the, the middle plot here, you can actually see this kind of color-coded system where as we improve our connectivity um, on the x-axis, the power consumption, which is in blue on the y-axis, drastically plummets as soon as we start to do cloud an analytics. 
because we don't have to do as much locally. We can start to distribute it. We send it to the cloud. We don't have to worry about that computer on the wearable tying up a bunch of power from the batteries in the system. We're sending it to a remote server or to a tower and it's being offloaded from the system. This is where it starts to get really exciting. This is how we really get into advanced features for these systems. So I can tell you and start getting into kind of how we're, we're, we're going in between these different policies. But the idea here is it's important to be aware of your network and how to optimize your network. And that's what we're working on. And the bottom line is time is safety. So any additional computer delay imposes safety constraints. And that's why we're trying to get faster and better. And that's what's important. And that'll improve ultimately um, our economy, right? The theme of the day. Okay, smart textiles and the haptic interfaces. So where are we going? So I showed you a belt and I showed you the iPad. Where are we going and next steps? Um, actuators that are on our cell phone, the Taptic Engine from, from Apple. Um, earlier iPhones used, um, earlier cell phone technology used things like eccentric rotating masses. These things are rather crude. Um, new, material um, new material sciences and new soft polymers. We have these macrofiber composites. These are these really cool um, uh, ceramic materials you can see visualized um, uh, in the shirt diagram for those on the phone and then kind of zoomed in. Um, and what we're able to do here is leverage uh, these materials that have superior actuation authority. So we basically have a much wider range to manipulate them um, and they're much, much better. Not only can we end up doing more with them, meaning we can use and, and kind of use them in a, in a more facile manner for communication, they're also energy harvesting. So for example, you can imagine wearing these systems in and as you're breathing, it's that your device is actually storing energy. Just like in a Tesla, as soon as you slow down, you take your foot off the accelerator, as you're slowing down, those wheels are now building energy for your actual car and you're recharging your batteries, okay? Same type of concept. So energy harvesting in addition to powering the actuator needs for the tactile component of the system. And we're now starting to examine, um, many thanks to Todd and the psychophysics and appreciating how we talk to the end users with these systems, given the fact that we have a much wider range. So this has to do with playing with the frequency of the responses of the system, so how you're getting those vibratory alerts, in addition to what would be called the duty cycle. The last story, so I'm gonna pause real quick and ask if there are any questions. I think I'm gonna have enough time to get through this. Any questions on that? I know that was a lot of information. Um, John, any questions? Just with one of your partners, I know we're in trade dispute with one of them. And the oh, Huawei? Yeah, yes. is that a problem? Um, yeah, so good question. So it turns out that the, um, um, I, I, I guess what I'm at liberty to say right now is that um, most of what Huawei is supporting is very fundamental um, and we're structuring Huawei support. Huawei supports our electrical computer department um, and most of what they're doing is um, um, really uh, geared towards things like massive MIMO and antenna research and um, um, from what we understand, it really looks like it's, it's not going to be viewed as anything that could be kind of cor cor corporate espionage or anything that would be nefarious. And so I, I think um, those actual affiliations are going to be maintained and Huawei will probably be, um, uh, stay in place as an industrial affiliate and sponsor of NYU Wireless. So I think we're actually in good shape there, believe it or not. Although we're not um, totally in the clear on, on, on that yet. There's still some decisions to be adjudicated. Any other questions? So yes, quick, Dr. Quick, question, quick question about perhaps going to commercialization. Yes. So these things, it seems like there's a million potentials here. But I'm just thinking back at Bellevue where we just bought a $27,000 power wheelchair. Mm -hmm. There's head control for a high tetraplegic. It has head control, which is probably fairly old when I was even a resident. So that's the level, I think, of you know, a lot of this commercialization. Clearly, there was technology 10 years ago that would be more advanced. I mean, why, why hasn't that advanced in that, that particular example? But 
you know, is this cutting edge just too expensive to commercialize or? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I think uh, um, most of these things are, 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 are really um, interesting use cases um, and really demand next level wireless telecommunications. Um, so I, I can tell you a lot of the wireless engineers are incredibly enthusiastic about working on these technologies because to give you a quick sense about some of those book bags, even the one that I, we were spinning around in that little animation, that had six cameras on it. In order to have six online camera, camera views, to think about that, the, the current Tesla has, let's, I think it's 12 right now, right? Um, and their newer, I think, third generation hardware, it, they anticipate doing sampling a thousand times a second. Um, it's an incredible amount of computational need. And in order to, to get that onto a pedestrian, it, 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 it would really be a massive book bag. Um, and, and, and so I, I think the idea here is we're only now getting to the point where all of this can become a reality. Um, and so I think that's probably where, why we're at this maturity point. To your point about maybe why other things haven't advanced as fast as they potentially could, I think in a lot of cases um, you need individuals, individuals that, are, that are pushing for change. Um, you need people in the right areas trying to connect the dots, working with the right teams in order to make sure we drive towards uh, you know, the, the right outcome. So say a simple project for you would be to advance power wheelchairs, which seem like sort of mainline well, rehab. You know, well, kind of well one, 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 one fun point that I'll leave you with before I get to story three, Permobile, um, which many of you know is probably one of the giants or juggernauts in wheelchairs, now has, from what I understand from individuals on their advisory board, a totally autonomous wheelchair. Um, so basically they have the driverless wheelchair of the future that's driving around Nashville. Their headquarters are in Nashville. Um, Tennessee, um, and they now have autonomous wheelchairs. Now, how, how that's going to ultimately be commercialized, how that's going to be spun into different products, what's what's happening in terms of aspects of that they're going to be. So, for example, we Tesla, Elon Musk has been saying for years that he's going to have a total driverless car, right? He's going to go from coast to coast, but he's been missing his dates. He's been missing his, his, his promises, right? Um, I don't know what Permobile is going to do because I think they're making a boatload of money and maybe they're waiting and they're actually delaying depending on how they, they plan on commercializing this technology. They're doing all kinds of really interesting things. Um, but it, we can uh, dig into more of that perhaps on the, on the question side, but I think those are really interesting um, next steps, certainly. Um, and of course, I'm more than happy to, to work in those areas and we have a, a potential um, bridge that we're working on developing uh, with Permobile. Um, okay, so the last thing that I thought would be fun is to get everyone's thoughts around this concept of uh, digital rehabilitation. Um, so in the last, um, I guess we have, I think about eight minutes, I'm going to weave you through, uh, is, is that about right? We have eight minutes left or so? Six minutes, okay. And I know we're going to keep strict because we probably have to get trains and things like that. So I'll, I'll go through this rather quickly. Um, the gym is becoming increasingly digital, right? Um, the gym sensorized. What does this mean? Well, we have sensors in the environment now. We have infrastructure. We have RTL, um, RTLS systems. We have sensors on body and clothing and wearables like the iWatch, etc. We have sensors integrated into gym machines to an extent. If we go into the commercial marketplace, we're being inundated with different things. So here's a really interesting technology that's been getting some attention in California called the smart weight pin. And I've seen some media releases about it, but I'm not really entirely sure. It promises a whole lot. It says, we're gonna know exactly the number of sets, weight, you know, reps, weights lifted, range and tempo with this little pin that you're gonna be basically put in your weight rack and it's gonna be able to do all of this. Um, and they went to a couple trade shows, but when we've dug in and, and Mahi has done a great job trying to dig into some of the internet searches, we haven't really found too much on the smart pin, right? And I don't think we've found too much. 
Orange Theory. What about Orange Theory? We've talked about Orange Theory. Orange Theory is taking up all kinds of attention. There's franchises popping up everywhere. I talked about this with Kate, and everyone's talking about Epoch training. And I've actually, my sister-in-law like loves it. She said, you have to go to a class, took me there. When you dig in on next level with some of these coaches, they fall apart and they unravel. You know, what's happening with this? It's kind of like a wannabe cardiac rehab, right? I mean, that's what these guys are basically saying. Yet they're making all kinds of money. I mean, it's buku dollars. These guys are everywhere. Um, what about Tonal? Tonal's also picking up all kinds of next steps, right? This is like this kind of like Peloton meets the weights, right? So they have this kind of like funny monitor and they have these cables popping out. It's like a personal trainer in your wall. Well, that sounds interesting, right? But so that you have these and you're supposed to end up getting quantitative results and uh, objectified data and you know, you're gonna tell them their goal, sounds rehabilitation like, right? And all of a sudden you're gonna become magically fit. Okay, fantastic, thank you, Tonal. Um, and then we have Peloton, of course, right? Which is talking about IPOs, et cetera. We have the bike, the immersive bike. We have the new treadmill. Again, I mean, massive amounts of subscriptions. It's, it's, it's very intimidating. The most interesting one that's actually, I think, that's not getting a lot of attention that we found is Technobody, which is very, very interesting. Um, here's a little bit of information on that. I won't go into it. Um, this thing actually looks more like an operative chair to me than an actual gym. Um, but the type of, this, of analysis that they're doing is pretty profound in what they're able to provide. Um, and this is picking up some attention recently in terms of what they're able to do in terms of the, the digital data, right? The, the digitization. So I ask us, how do we take dumb equipment and make it smart? So we've been working with a new medical roboticist and we've been thinking about, and I don't want to dig into too much here, about using potentiometers, FSRs, and using IMUs and coming up with taking our current gyms and making them smarter. How do we actually get from what's on the left here, which I would say is kind of front-end, back-end, digital apps for, for, for patients and actually computer systems that could feed into EMR meets all of our exercises in the gym. How do we go digital? How do we actually end up doing that? And can we create form factors that look something like this? So as a person is walking through our physical therapy gyms, we end up getting um, um, defined and granular data about every single thing that they're doing. Some of the promises these other companies, you know, these, these, other, these, other co these other companies are talking about, but that we actually come to the table with with the right intellectual horsepower. So um, sets, reps, weights, range of motion, cadence, fluidity, these are the type of things that we can get from some of these sensorized, perhaps now no, no longer dumb, now smart equipment, okay? And we can do it for anyone, the average Joe, the potentially the average gain, right? And you can actually end up seeing how you progress and how this could help in terms of a patient um, forward app that they could actually download on their phone while also feeding into Epic. So um, I leave this for you um, with some last thoughts and um, I'll just take a couple, a couple more <laughs> moments to say um, four, th four or five things. The first is, in conclusion, I would encourage us all to become rehabilitation economists. I think examination should include multi-effector coordination and CNS injury, which we talked a little bit about before, can and may create interference patterns that affect function, economy, and limit recovery. I think we should expand our definition of assistive technology to include sensory augmentative tools. Wearables are here and their implications in rehabilitation are profound. And I do believe that there's a pressing need for PM&R uh, to go fully digital, to diagnose, monitor, prognosticate, and to, or, to ensure our central position on the multidisciplinary stage. So with that, I have many, many people to thank, some of whom are pictured here. I really thank everyone for their attention. Todd, Mahi, a part of the core team in the lab upstairs, Dr. Flanagan, you know, everyone here has helped shape 
um, uh, a lot of this reality. So, so many, many thanks, and I'm happy to entertain questions. And sorry, I kind of almost went over. So, thanks so much. Any questions? This is not a question, but just a thank you to you. This is this is like there's more stuff that you're doing that I ever imagined, and I keep pretty much up on the JR radar. <laughs> it's just fascinating to me. But the potential of not only what you're already doing, but then where you're taking it. So it's, it's absolutely brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. Again, I really thank the team. One Cog, we have a really fantastic team. Uh, it's been uh, fantastic to be in this ecosystem and um, you know to work uh, not just here in the medical center downtown also at the engineering school it's been a, a fantastic uh, fantastic ride so it's just beginning <laughs> I, perhaps just yes. maybe a, a word of caution in that there's lots of things that are very high tech and very sophisticated that i think don't necessarily have clinical proof behind them so you just think of you know um, uh, wheelchairs, you know, the, the tilted space wheelchairs, which double the price of a wheelchair. I don't think anyone's ever shown they really have benefit over the, the wheelchairs that Ann and I used to use 40 years ago for spinal cord patients. Yeah. You know, the, the prostheses, which are so much more sophisticated and all this sort of thing, are they worth the money that you pay for them? You know, um, and, and these things. So I'm a little concerned. Yeah. You have to get into clinical trials and make sure these things are really effective and yeah. forget even being cost efficient. Yeah, no, you bring up a really great point. We're actually, we're working with someone now in uh, public health who's interested in building finance models to understand, for example, even at some of the price points of these wearables, let's say we build a wearable on IPAC that currently costs $1,200. So just to give you a quick sense, if I have problems with depth perception, if I have issues with stereopsis and I have a visual impairment, my, my, my risk of falling increases fourfold. It's four times higher. Now, for an average individual who's, who's of, of, of older age, so let's say over the age of 65, I can't remember when I looked at this last, it may have been three years ago, if you end up getting hospitalized plus some type of standard imaging and you get thoroughly assessed and you spend over one night in the emergency room while they're trying to suss out the details, the average bill across all payers is $17,000 for that hospitalization. Now, if you think about people who are visually impaired, moderately and severe, New York State data by itself, if you're visually impaired, you fall two and a half times more likely. And that's just New York State data, moderately and severely. So anytime you're falling and then you're getting, again, you know, you're trying to suss out details, and this is without any type of further issues in terms of fractures, et cetera, um, $17,000 bill. So we're trying to uh, cull information from, the, from that data, those kind of epidemiologic data points and build finance models to say, you know, wh where can we justify cost to say, you know, at this point, these individuals should really be throwing money at it. And it's interesting, last year for the first time, we had someone reach out from what was called an insurance sandbox to ask us to do a keynote to say that we actually think the assistive technology that you're talking about with these smarter wearables is gonna actually make sense for insurers to pay for them for workers. Because you're going to end up improving safety, the safety profile of what some of these high-risk some of these workers in high-risk occupations are doing. Um, so I, I think if, if we play defense like insurers are playing defense, then I think it makes a lot of sense and preventative medicine. Um, because you know all these healthcare dollars, I mean, it, it, it's incredible. Um, you know, if we think about the um, the implications, a couple of quick points. We talked about the commuter project. I didn't dig into these details. If you're visually impaired, you're eight times more likely to take car services in person who has um, all their faculties, no sensory problems. Eight times more likely to take car services. So, I mean, you think about the implications of that financially for the for, for you know for the economy. I mean, it, it, it's it's profound. There's a paper from Gordois that looks at, and we cite all of this in the grants, 
I know Molly and Todd are sick of using this paper, but I love saying it because they use the trillion, they, they use the, the T word sometimes in terms of what the, the cost could be as it relates to visual impairment. I mean, it, it's, it's astounding when you think about it. Because, you know, it trips, falls, et cetera, you know, the hip fracture rate, the depression, the stroke, because then the visual impairment, your immobility is, is, is skyrocketing, so then you get obese. Obesity is higher, then you have diabetes type 2, you have stroke issues. All of these things are higher. It's, it, it's just this, you know, this stability downward spiral. Um, it's a massive problem. And unfortunately, we don't do a great job, whereas we do a better job in, you know, in other, you know, perhaps areas in Europe where they have fantastic longitudinal data on some individuals who have visual impairment. In this situation, we kind of, we separate these things out. It's all kind of silos. You have a fall, we're not looking at some of these connections, the, the feeders, the cause, um, you know, et cetera. Uh, but um, we're looking at doing that and actually benchmarking, you know, where those financial models, um, you know, how to characterize them, et cetera. So um, that's a good point, and we are absolutely looking to, to, uh, um, to take next steps towards for you. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.